Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 465 for October 1st, 2018. On today's show, bassist Adi Meyerson talks about her new album, Where We Stand. You'll notice that the audio quality changes a bit during the course of this interview. Adi was uh, moving around some in different rooms and then eventually was outside. So, you know, just bear with it. But I think the content is good enough that it makes up for uh, some of the roughness in the audio. As I mentioned, her new album is called Where We Stand. Let's check out some music from it right now. My guest is Adi Meyerson. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. You're, I'm uh, excited. I'm really glad. Thank you. Me too. I really, really dig uh, Where We Stand, your debut album. I just, I think it sounds great. I oh, think the writing so is really strong. Um, you know, the players that you've chosen are, are really fabulous. And I wonder how you feel, because it's been out for a little bit now. And how does it feel? It's, you know, having that very first thing out in the world um, now that you've had a little bit of separation from its release this summer, what does it feel like now when you when you hear it? Do you ever listen to it? I guess maybe even is another um, question. I, <laughs> I don't listen to it like on my free time that much. Sure. Uh, every once in a while it pops up, and I'm like, oh, cool. But I, I mean, yeah, it's been a while. Like we recorded it a year ago, and it's been out for a few months. So there is some kind of like. Um, like relief feeling, I guess, but it's like, oh, it's just there. It's out. It's just there. It seems like it still has, it's still getting played and people are still talking about it and people are still listening to it. So I'm glad that it has some kind of like continuous vibe to it, I guess you would say. I don't know how to really explain that properly. I'm overall very happy and proud of the project. I mean, of course, you know, an album is just some kind of snapshot of one period of time. So I, I kind of like try to look at it as that. And, but then yet still try to make something that's like, that doesn't expire in that sense. Like, you know, like all these classic albums that we love and we listen to, we still listen to them, even that they were made in the sixties or the fifties or the eighties. Um, so I'm, I'm not trying to make something that people will like 
get sick of it that I'll get sick of. But at the same time, it's like, of course, there's things that I would do differently on the next one or try to evolve from the one I already put out. You know, the thing about the snapshot is very true. Um, in the, the case of a first album, though, I I sometimes feel like there is more, maybe more pressure on it because it's like a snapshot of your entire life up to that moment. You know, when you release right. your second album, it only has to encompass the time between now and whenever that is. But this is like, right, this is the very is. first thing I'm telling you about myself in music. Here it is. No, Did course. it feel like and there was pressure. more weight on it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it took me... I, the idea to make the album and kind of the concept started to form in my mind probably two years before we went to the studio. And then so it like it was definitely something that I worked up to and wasn't just like, OK, let's just go and record and see what happens. So I did put a lot of thought in, in into conceptualizing it and preparing myself personally to be ready and writing and trying to really make something that's that's good and that makes a good statement um, and that people like and want to listen to and that people want a second album, um, which I think it seems to be um, that I have succeeded, that people do want to hear more and they are interested in what's going to come next. So I'm excited about that. But yeah, there is definitely a lot of pressure that gets put on first albums. And also as an independent artist, when you make a record, if you're doing it without a label and even sometimes with a label, nobody really tells you how much work and how much um, money goes into it. So there's that side of the pressure too, that you want to make something that was worth all your time and effort and money that you put out. So you want people to listen to it. You want it to be good. things I want to follow up on there and the, the first is will you say more about getting yourself ready to make the recording like what what went into that and how did you how did you know when you had reached a point where you thought okay this material is ready to be to be recorded I mean I don't think I've ever really reached a point where I'm like I'm ready <laughs> let's do this I kind of had to make a decision and just decide on the date and be like I'm gonna be ready no matter what because if it, I was if I just wait around 
for this feeling of being ready, I don't think that really ever happens, at least for me personally. But, um, but yeah, I had to do with a lot just gaining more experience in the studio and um, trying to like be in the studio as a side as a sideman and and like because it's a very different experience playing in front of an audience and being in a little booth with headphones on and that that like anxiety of having it all recorded. And also, I mean, playing my music enough times, either with the band or with a band, to get to the place where I'm not, I don't have, as a bass player, like I'm not overplaying or putting this certain pressure on myself that I'm the one who has to always be in the spotlight because my music is not written like that. It's not, it's not like a bass, it's not like a solo bass piece or something like that. So being comfortable enough with the material as if it wasn't mine, I would say, was part of that preparation. If that, it might sound a little weird, but that's kind of how I try to think about it, to like have some kind of emotional disconnect from it so I stop thinking about myself and I'm thinking about the music and the band and the vibe and my role in the band overall. You come out anyway, no matter what. I would record my gigs a lot and listen and like take notes as if it was like a record and be like, what do I like? What's too long? What's too short? I don't like what I'm doing here. This sounds bad. This is weird. Um, just stuff like that, that kind of preparation. Listening to this album, I don't think it would be easy for someone to point out who the leader was, which I think speaks to exactly what you were talking about. There's not a, you know, three minute bass solo in every song and strikes me as very important, especially to the kind of sound it has. Like it kind of it harkens back to a day when a lot of those recordings were actual working bands. And this very much sounds that way. Most people have say, share the same opinion about it as you and me, but I mean, I've also heard opinions that are like, say that that's a negative thing to like not, you know, to not have the band leader featured. But I guess I've come to like, at least the way I play at the moment, I'm not try, I'm not a soloist in that sense. I don't look at myself as a solo bass player and it's not it's not very important to me to have a bass solo in every song and also as a listener I don't necessarily want to hear a 10 track record that has a bass solo in every song <laughs> as much as I love the bass <laughs> yeah so I mean and I think I tried to make the music itself strong and and I guess it's my music and it it has I would hope it has some kind of like individualism in the writing and in the playing that doesn't necessarily have to come from a solo. It can come from lines or from accompaniment or from a, a deeper point of view in that sense. So that's kind of what I, what I was going for.
Will you talk about the folks who are on this album? It's really a a pretty fabulous band. So just uh, tell us who plays on it with you. Yeah, sure. Um, so let's see. We got we got Joel from on saxophone, who's always been one of my top favorite saxophone players, even before I moved to New York. Um, he's incredible, and I'm like, I was so grateful he was able to do this project with me and was interested in being part of it. And we have Freddie Hendricks on trumpet, who is probably, I feel exactly the same way about him. I love his sound and everything he brings and the energy he brings, and he's just amazing overall. And then, let's see, we got Mike King on the piano, who was probably one of the first people I met when I moved into the city. I moved to New York six years ago. Mike was one of like my first friends and people that I played with. And I've been a fan of his for years, and he's just incredible. And I think more people should know about him. And then we have Kush Abadi on the, on the drums. He's also one of my like oldest friends in New York. Also one of the first people I met, first people I played with, and I love playing with him. I feel super comfortable playing with him, and I'm glad he could make the record date. He's just amazing. So, And then the last person we have is Camilla Neza who I met also when I first moved to the city. She um, she was at New School for a semester the same time I was at New School. And we kind of met and I heard her and I loved her voice. And when I wrote that song, Little Firefly, I kind of had an idea of her singing that song with me. Little firefly, high up in the sky, so high in a purple painted sky, glistening with ease, you shine. Little do you know, the light you spread will still go on without you. to go come back to me voice and the darkness of her voice was like really fit that music and I love her playing I think she's an incredible guitar player as well and composer songwriter like everything she does is beautiful and again happy she was willing and able to make this record and she really made it something special so yeah that's the band so will you you've mentioned a couple times moving to New York which of course implies that you were somewhere else yeah. first and you you were and yeah. I know uh, nothing at all about the Israeli jazz scene or jazz education scene. Um, so uh, I'm guessing yeah. at least many other listeners are probably in the same boat as me. Can you talk about growing up as a jazz musician there? Yeah, sure. Um, I came to jazz very late. Um, I only started, I was. I grew up in Jerusalem and I started playing electric bass when I was 14 and kind of was into fusion and some of that kind of stuff. And then um, when I was about 17, I was in this performing arts high school 
and well, not just performing arts, but arts high school. And I, I was doing visual art at first, and then I moved to the music department and played bass. And it wasn't very jazz-focused, but we had, like, a little taste of it. And one of my teachers gave me, like, a Sonny Rollins record or something. And then I was like, oh, this is so cool. What is this? This is pretty this is a different kind of jazz than the jazz like I knew. And I started getting into it a little more. And after graduating high school, I, I decided to pick up the upright because that's kind of the sound I was hearing on these records. So that that's how I got into it. And then, but I was already 18 at that point, and I've, I heard about this program, this new program that um, was happening in Tel Aviv that was like, it was like a joint program with the new school that you do two years until you two years at the new school and get your degree. And cause I was getting into jazz and I was like staying up late. I found out about smalls and I was like watching smalls live <laughs> at like two in the morning. And I had this thing about it cause New York was like the birthplace of jazz and everybody was in New York and Sonny Rollins lived in New York and Ron Carter lived in New York and all these people lived in New York. And it just, I had to get to New York somehow. So I heard about this program and I auditioned for it and I was only playing upright for like a few months, but somehow I got accepted on upright somehow and ended up doing three years in that program and, and I moved to Tel Aviv and then I got really more immersed in the Israeli jazz scene because most of it is like happening in Tel Aviv, the local scene. And I met all like these great players and all these great people and was in this school and was training to go to New York. It kind of had to get a lot of things together really fast and ended up getting accepted to the new school. And then I moved to New York in August 2012. So I was playing bass for about three years and studying jazz for about three years. Moved to New York, continued to get my degree. My like experience with the Israeli jazz scene really only lasted about five years in that sense. Because that wasn't really part of it when I was a teenager growing up. What was your thinking about what what your future might look like. And I, I mean, I'm always curious. There are like so few models for people of, oh, I like jazz music. Maybe this is a thing I could do for a living. Like that's, there's just so few people that you ever get to see in your life who are actually doing that. So I wonder what what you thought the future might hold or maybe even how your family reacted when you said, hey, I want to go to New York and play jazz. I mean, my parents, my dad was always like super supportive about everything I wanted to do. Um, my mom, my, I needed to prove, I prove a little few points to my mom. Um, I ended up getting hired to be the house bassist for the Israeli version of Cabaret, the musical. Okay. Um, when I was like 20, which paid a lot of money. And I was waitressing in, in school and I was doing this thing and I was like, oh, I, I, I told them, I was like, look, mom, you can make a living being, making music. Um, and she was like, okay, fine. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I had teachers that were like my role models, but I just kind of had like the greats. Those were my role models, like people like Sonny and like Ron. And I was like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. <laughs> you know, if Paul Chambers can not, I mean, I was young and naive too, so I wasn't really thinking about like social climate or anything. I was just like, fuck everybody. I'm going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't really like nobody could really tell me that I couldn't at that time so I just did it I, I think everyone That's, should have the life philosophy if Sonny Rollins can do it I can do it 
I think I mean, yeah. that's a com- that's a completely <laughs> admirable not? way to go about living life. I think. <laughs> I didn't really know any better in that sense. You can say. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for not knowing any better. I think I think knowing better often prevents us from doing things we could do if we pretended yeah. like there was no exactly. obstacle. Exactly. Like if somebody from the outside told you, "Oh, you can't do this because you're this, or you're that, or you live in this country, you're you're this color or this gender," then like nothing would happen in the world. Nothing would work out. Let's take a break from the interview for a second to talk about how you can support The Jazz Session. Go to patreon.com slash thejazzsession. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thejazzsession. For $5 a month, you get a bonus episode each month. If we reach 100 subscribers, I'll put out three episodes of the main show every month. If we reach 200 subscribers, The Jazz Session goes weekly. That's patreon.com slash the jazz session, P A T R E O N dot com slash the jazz session. Thanks to AJ, Ann, Anthony, Chad, Chandra, Chris, Hans, James, Lance, Mark, Mike, Mikhail, Patrick, Richard, and Terry, who are already members. So how did New York and reality compare to New York as you imagined when you were still back home? (laughs) Um, It was definitely a culture shock, a lot more than I thought. Because I visited New York a few times before I moved. Um, So I spent like, you know, a couple weeks at a time here. But still, it was a little bit of a culture shock, even like, because my English was really good. I grew up with American parents, like... It really, like, I, there was a lot to get used to, and cost of living was definitely high. And, I mean, running around the city, like, I really didn't realize how tiring it was. But, I don't know, I got pretty lucky in that sense where, I guess, I spent a lot of my first, my first few years just, like, hanging out, like, in school, practicing, and then going to the jam sessions and meeting people. So I managed to kind of build myself like a little bit of a world outside school pretty fast and start getting gigs like, you know, like little things. I would take anything that I would get called to do and to be playing around the city and playing in restaurants and in cafes and in clubs and doing shows and, you know, just being out there and not really caring and just being like, I want to play, I want to play. Again, nobody nobody was going to tell me that I couldn't because I was like, I'm going to do it anyway, even if it sucks. And so New York was New York was cool. It was definitely like not. I don't know if I really had this like fantasy idea about it, 
as much as some people do. Cause, but I, I mean, I felt very much at home in it from the beginning, which was very like a first for me. Cause I was living away from home um, before I moved to New York in a different city. But like, cause like everyone is different and weird and strange and like people are like, I don't know. Nobody fits in in New York. Like you fit in by not fitting in. So I felt that I fit. I fit in by not fitting in, which was a great feeling. Because back home I wasn't. I was kind of like an odd, oddball. I didn't really do what everyone else was doing. Yeah, New York is a great place to be. That. Yeah. So it felt really good, and um, and definitely felt very much at home. And I love it. I still love it. It's been six years now, so it's kind of like um, it's it definitely exhausts you, and I find that I have to leave more often. But there's still nothing, nothing like it in the whole world. Like it's some, it's something else, and the music here is is different, and the vibe. I don't know. It's hard to explain, but I mean, you know, I would think. Yes. Do you live in New York? <laughs> I don't now, but I did. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. In, in the notes to this record, uh, if I can kind of shift the conversation a little bit, you mentioned turning to writing as one of the ways to, to kind of process um, losing your dad. And that's a really sensitive thing to talk about. If you'd prefer not to, we certainly don't have to. But I'd be I'd be interested just to hear more about that, to, to know something about your dad and about... Um, about music and in it helping you afterward. Um, yeah, I think I mean, music was always something I loved, but um, and my dad was like he was he played bluegrass guitar and he was kind of like the musical one in the family. Um, and he was always like a very big supporter of anything musical or any. There's basically anything I wanted to do. Um, but. But like, I guess just uh, the idea of what music was and what it meant to me kind of just changed after that because it was just like a way to like escape for a little while. And then writing and trying to find a way to honor him. And actually that was a very hard thing because I could have, I kind of like stopped writing for a little while. I was writing a lot of music for my like for my recital at school, and then right after he passed, I just kind of like stopped <laughs> for a long time because I just couldn't. I put a little bit too much pressure on it, on the music, to be like my emotional crutch, and then the music stopped being fun, and I didn't want to play. But then it was also like my way of escaping. So it was this very weird year. Or two years even um, with my relationship with music it was like I needed it but I also I also was like couldn't I was like artistically closed off a little bit and like it would just come in every once in a while there'd be like there'd be like these little drips of things like oh a song here and a song there but like I had this idea of like trying to write like some kind of like sweet or something for my dad and I just couldn't do it. And then later on it like ended up being this thing 
where I was like, oh, I actually wrote all these songs based on these feelings that I was feeling, and it helped me cope with the feelings that I was feeling, or the people, and it wasn't necessarily like a portrait of one person, but like a portrait of my life. I don't know. That sounds a little weird, but in cliche, but it's what it was. How, what is your relationship with music like now? Um, I love music. Music is basically my whole life now. But also, I try to find I try to find a balance between work, like making music work, and ma- making music art. And the two, because it can get you can get sucked in very fast to it just being work. And there's no art making. And then sometimes when you're just making art, you're not making any money. So I'm trying to balance it out so it doesn't, so I don't exhaust myself and wear myself out just working. Um, that's my relationship with music right now. Saying no to like certain things um, to free up some emotional space for creating, if that makes sense. Yeah, that you actually anticipated the question I I was going to ask exactly, which is that sometimes it means taking gigs that might not be as artistically fulfilling because you have to pay the rent, and then sometimes it means saying no so that you have more space to keep right doing the things that speak well, to you. It's just about balance, balance, and and you know, there's playing music is always like a beautiful thing, but sometimes I find, especially as a bass player if I'm doing too much of it throughout the day, physically, like if I'm playing eight hours of bass in three different boroughs and I'm outside, I left my house at 9 a.m. and come home at 2 in the morning, then the next day I wake up and I don't want to touch the instrument. And I like don't want to practice or don't want to, I just, I, I can't, I'm like exhausted in that sense. So, I mean, I'm sure other instruments have that as well, but bass is like, especially in New York, it's because you're, it's very physical and you're moving it around, you're carrying it up and down the stairs and the subway, like, you know, that's another part of the exhaustion, exhaustion and not necessarily just playing the instrument. So yeah, trying to free up space and time so that there isn't a day where I don't want to play. Yeah, I feel like there should be a nonprofit set up for people who have to carry their base around New York. It's just the worst. Every time. Well, <laughs> I had a subway fight with some guy one day. It, that's my like running joke that I have a nonprofit called like Pay for Bass Players Cabs to Gigs dot com. <laughs> and if someone ever says something to me on the train, I I ask them for money. Yeah, it's like my running joke. I had a fight with some guy once because he was like, you probably shouldn't take that on the train. And I was like, well, can I get 100 bucks to pay for my cab? I actually have a nonprofit. You can email me. I accept PayPal and Venmo donations. <laughs> <laughs> and then the guy kind of just like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, because it cost me 100 bucks to take a cab. So either you leave me alone, let me live my life, or you can pay for my commute. <laughs> So, that's beautiful. But I actually thought about it. I thought about making like business cards and actually starting like a real, a real nonprofit or a real like PayPal account for donations. <laughs> I think that would be a great idea. I love it. 
<laughs> well, you, you have my support. Jungle. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you. <laughs> I also made pins that say, it's not a cello, and I put them on my base, and I've, <laughs> I've, um, I've successfully spread the word throughout the base community around New York and the world. What's what's coming up? What uh, I know, you know, we're we're talking about an album that just came out a few months ago. But as you mentioned, it was recorded a year ago, and obviously you've still been writing right. and making music since then. What are you looking ahead to? Um, yeah, I've been I've been writing music. I've been when I do play my live shows, like I try to add new things to the book. So there are some like new pieces that haven't been recorded that we play live. Um, I'm trying to. I want to do more stuff with the quintet. I mean, I guess this album still, I'm still trying to work, work this album in the sense of like touring and gigs and stuff like that. And, and I need some time for myself to just kind of like re regroup for the next record. So yeah, there is definitely another idea to do another quintet album or at least or a trio record with some kind of like, special guests or something. I don't necessarily know if I want to do an all original record because I do also very much love standards and Brazilian music and just pretty music and other people's music too. So I might try to incorporate a little bit more of that throughout this next one. Um, But yet still with like some kind of concept and personal vibe that like is some kind of a continue continuum of this past one I just did. And I've been I've been studying um strings. I'm a little so obsessed with strings lately. So I have I'm working on this project. It's a it's it's not a jazz project. But it's an electric project that I'll be playing electric bass on, and I'm trying to do like a little string quartet electric bass band. But I've been experimenting with writing like music with lyrics, so writing more songs. 
um, lately, which has been cool and interesting and and kind of not, I'm not really trying to market that to like the jazz venues or jazz populations, but there's an idea to maybe make an EP with that. It's like a four or five song collection. And I don't know, I'm, I'm a big fan of art. So um, I started to write some music inspired by a Japanese artist named Yayoi Kusama. But that project is in very, very um, beginning states. It's just a lot of sketches at the moment. But I have a goal to maybe by mid-2019 or end of 2019 be able to put on a full show uh, to play that suite of music that's in the works. But, I mean, I'm also still just busy with, like, life and living in New York and playing gigs and studying and running around. Um doing all, playing all, a bunch of other people's music, which I love, absolutely love to do. I mean, I love being a sideman. I love learning people's music. I love playing standards. Um, but yeah, I guess for my band, I'm really trying to um, take the band out of New York a little bit and book us some gigs out of town and still play music from the record, but and the new stuff and kind of like workshops the new stuff into the repertoire so it will be ready to be recorded when the time comes. So are there some shows coming up that people can uh, come see and check you out? Yeah, um, absolutely. I have a show booked for October 14th. Um, This is going to be more of a trio show with maybe a couple special guests. There's only one set. It's at Cornelia Street Cafe at 9.30. I'm going to try to experiment a little bit with the trio vibe, which is like something I haven't really gotten that much of a chance to do since the record came out because I've been booking the band as a quintet but I want to see how some of this music and some of the newer music sounds in a smaller more intimate setting and then I have another show that's a pretty big show actually on November 2nd which I'm really excited about at the Demena Center in New York which is this beautiful room um, in Midtown and that's going to be a quintet show with Camilla Meza on guitar and voice, Godwin Louis on Alice's saxophone, DJ Strickland on drums, and Glenn Zaleski on piano. So, yeah, that show on November 2nd is a show that um, I'm writing some new music for, working on some new music, trying to incorporate maybe one or two songs. Hopefully, if I, am, if I manage to get it together by the deadline, we'll be playing some music with um, lyrics by the Spanish poet Pablo Neruda, who I recently discovered and kind of just like fell in love with his work. So I've been reading a lot of his poems and I'm trying to write some music based off of those poems for this specific show in November. Well, that all sounds fabulous. Um, and I'll also direct uh, folks, there'll be a link to uh, Adi's website in the show notes. Uh, you can go there and uh, check out what's coming up and buy the record. Uh, my guest is Adi Meyerson. It's been uh, such a, a, a pleasure to talk to you. I uh, hope we'll have you on the show again. Yeah, you too. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me.
And that's the show. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the logo. You can find the show on social media, facebook.com slash thejazzsession, on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, even if iTunes slash Apple Podcasts is not the way you listen to the show. Putting a review there really helps the show be noticed by other people. Also, don't forget to become a supporter at patreon.com slash thejazzsession, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thejazzsession. New episodes come out on the 1st and the 15th, so I'll see you next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.